Well, I slept very well. Um, my cat, Mochi, was sleeping right between my legs, so I couldn't move. So I was forced to have a completely restful, silent, still sleep. And it's just wonderful to have Mochi sleeping with me. Good morning, everyone. Today, uh, we are going to continue addressing the precepts. And the next three precepts, we addressed the three last week, the three refuges. And today we're going to take a look at what are called the three pure precepts. They are variously formulated. You will find them uh, expressed as in many Buddhist teachings in very many different ways. So we can't clamp, clamp down on any one particular one, uh, which keeps us from becoming dogmatic, which is very important in our practice to keep, keep the practice alive, keep us, keep us a little bit confused and a little bit um, uh, uh, wondering what things really mean. So, I'm going to uh, simplify what is already a very simple set of three precepts. They're usually expressed as refrain from doing evil, embrace and sustain all good, and save all beings. Embrace and sustain all beings. But really, we've all heard these precepts, I suspect, most of us, as children. They're very simple. I can just hear a mother saying to her child, don't be bad, be good, and be nice to people. So simple, don't be bad, be good, be nice to people. Even a, a little child can understand that. But sometimes it's said that even a mature adult can't practice it. A little child can understand, don't be bad, be good, and be nice. Be nice to people. Treat them kindly. So those are pure. Those are pure, they're simple. But they're not pure in a moralistic sense. That is, they're like lily white. Or even neutral in the sense of purity. They're pure as you might say, perfume is pure. And my mother uh, used to be a salesperson for pu perfumes, 
in Macy's down in Manhattan. And sometimes she would come home with a, a bottle of what was called toilet water. And toilet water is a, a, a wonderful, um, beautifully smelling liquid that has a lot of water and a little bit of the essence of the flower. After toilet water, there is a bottle of liquid called cologne. And cologne has less water and more of the essence of the flower. But perfume, perfume comes in these tiny little bottles and there's hardly any water in them. It's mostly the essence of the flower. That's why it's so expensive. That's the purity of the precepts, the three precepts. They're the perfume in that sense. They're pure flower. <laughs> They're the pure essence of the moral life, of the good life. Be good. Don't be bad, be kind. However, the perfume can be adulterated. It can be defiled. And the interesting thing about Buddhist ethics or morality is that it does address the full range of human action, of human motivation. We talk about the adulteration or the defilement of the perfume as being a kind of poison that can infiltrate, can destroy, can distort this perfume. Actually, we call these defilements poisons. There are three poisons. They can be, they can be grouped under the term evil, if you'd like. They are greed, anger, and delusion or attachment, aversion, and ignorance. So we have the perfume and we have the poisons. And both of those go together. And we have a choice. You know, we can take things that are not meant for human consumption, like poisons, like greed, anger, and ignorance, or we can, we can in, invite 
the perfume of loving kindness, generosity, all the perfections, <laughs> the three Ps, the perfections, the perfume, and the poisons. <clears throat> what, would it, what would it be if we were forced to be good? We might say life would be wonderful, but somehow something would be missing from the development of character, from the development of our, of our character, if we didn't have a choice. So we do have a choice. And that is the foundation of our liberation as Buddhist practitioners. Even forget the, the Buddhist adjective. <laughs> as human beings, we have a choice. I uh, knew a, a Dharma sister in California who, she's a sociologist, and she worked in San Quentin prison and I had a long conversation with her one day, and I asked her whether in her work with these really um, difficult individuals, she worked with people on, de on death row as well. I said, have you found that, would you say that, that there are some people who are fundamentally evil, that there is not your sense that any, that this person could be redeemed, that somehow that life could be changed. Because there are many who believe that evil is a real force, that this poison, that some people are born with this poison in them. And I was quite surprised by what she said. She said, in, I was expecting as a Buddhist that she would say, everything is dependent on causes and conditions. That anyone can change because there is impermanence. But she didn't say that. She said, in my work in San Quentin, I really believe there are some people who are just plain evil. That was very surprising. And, but I don't think that it is unusual. I, some people really do believe that evil is a force, is an independent force in the world and that some individuals have that force in them in inexorably without ability to change that that's just who they are they're just bad so i'm going to offer a quote and i 
I apologize for not remembering where I found this quote. If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds. And it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be simple? But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his or her own heart? Can we accept that? That we are the source of good and evil. We have the full range from devil to angel in us and we have it in us to move toward the light or toward the darkness we have a choice we are free so here's a metaphor that might be helpful we live in a boundless field of life. And in this boundless field, we have created a beautiful garden filled with all manner of harmonious beings. Earthworms, butterflies, all kinds of flowers, um, trees, grasses, a beautiful place for us to dwell. And surrounding this garden in this endless field of life is a wild, thorny forest. Really dense with underbrush and thorny bushes. And beyond this forest, there is a desert. And perhaps all that we call good makes its place in the garden, in this human world where there is harmony where there's, there's a healthy ecosystem, where everything depends on everything else. And because of that, all beings cooperate. And it feels really wonderful to be moving through this garden. It feels life-giving, joyful, and celebratory. This is where the precepts live. <laughs> they live in this garden. 
where things are in harmony, where there is order, there is mutual support, respect, and love, compassion. In fact, the precepts are exactly that order, that harmony, that compassion. They make the garden a garden. They are the principles governing that garden. And maybe all that we call evil makes its place in the desert. Which doesn't feel hospitable <laughs> to human life which feels a little dangerous. In which we have a sense of being lost without nourishment, a kind of homogeneity It's a risky place, the desert. I am thinking of the talk I gave on Breaking Bad. Yes, Sarah, you're shaking your head. Strangely, but maybe not so strangely, so much of Breaking Bad takes place in the desert. That's a place where there's danger. There's total, really total unpredictability and the possibilities for the poisons to take root because there's no boundary, there's no order, there's no, there are no distinctions there. And in fact, what happened to Walter White probably is that he crossed the threshold from the garden into the desert and got stuck there. I got stuck there. And that can often happen. And maybe that is all that evil is, what we call evil or being bad, <laughs> breaking bad you sort of break through the boundaries of the garden into uncharted territory, unpredictable territory, a kind of desert of humanity. There's, there's not the richness of humanity in that place. And in fact, I just bet that every single one of us on this screen has crossed that threshold at some point, crossed into the desert. I know I have. And sometimes, in fact, sometimes it's necessary 
to do what I did, like my daughter says, mom, never talk about your, your crimes <laughs> in a Dharma talk. She said, because this is a public confession and you never know who's going to come after you. <laughs> so I'm, I'm disregarding my daughter's advice and confessing to you <laughs> that I stole flowers. I've stolen other things too, but I feel safe in, in saying I stole flowers. And as soon as I stole them, I immediately felt horrible. I can't explain why I felt horrible, but I can explain it by suggesting that simply I, I stepped over into a non-human realm, <laughs> something that I stepped into the desert and it really felt dangerous. It felt like a place that was not hospitable <laughs> to human life. And so sometimes when you do that, and we, have, we do that, whether we should do it or not, I suspect that we do it anyway. And it provides us with a perspective on the garden. So, you know, I suspect that it's okay to explore the desert as long as one doesn't live there. <laughs> Living there is dangerous. Because you have set yourself outside of the truly human realm, which is the realm of mutual support, of compassion, of in interdependence. We risk dangers and we can feel that when we do cross over into that, into that area. There is another wonderful little story about a Native American grandfather. Some of you may have heard this very famous, who is talking to his grandson about an attack that was made on their tribe. And many people in the tribe were injured and killed in this attack. And the grandson asked his grandfather, how do you feel about this attack on our tribe? And the grandfather responded, well, in my heart, there are two wolves. One of the wolves is angry and vengeful and violent. 
And the other wolf is loving and forgiving and compassionate. And the grandson said, Grandpa, in this battle between these two wolves, which one wins? And the grandfather responds, the one I feed. The one I feed. So doing good, avoiding the bad, being kind, is within our power. We can feed, we can feed the one wolf or we can feed the other wolf. Both of these wolves exist in our heart, both. Otherwise, you know, being good wouldn't make, make that much difference. The good and the bad the good and the evil go together. There are creations. And notice that we say in our practice, we, we, we don't speak of an evil or a bad person. Like my friend, the sociologist said, you know, just some people are just evil. Rather, we speak of perfect people performing or behaving badly. So there, it's about your choices, your actions. It's about doing good much more than being good. No one is perfect uh, uh, permanently anything. So cultivating the doing, the action, these are behaviors that change with circumstances. So morality in Buddhist practice is a practice. It's about actions. It's not a theoretical or intellectual problem. It is a practical issue. It's about real action in the world. It's about relationships. What decision to make? What should I do? What to do here and now in this specific situation? A precept really won't tell us that. It's a good guide to have in our awareness. But when I was reaching for those flowers, the precept really was not the issue. 
In fact, I didn't even think about the precept until later. It was about this particular action in this particular setting with flowers which belonged to someone else who I knew. So what to do? What is the right thing to do? What is the good thing to do? The answer is in the situation itself. When we are clear, when our hearts, when our hearts are pure, when the perfume is in here, it becomes easy to enact the precepts. You don't even have to have precepts. It's just becomes easy to see what's right and what's not right. So it's up to us to get clear enough so that we can see deeply into every situation in our life and know right away what is good, what is not so good. It's not about being a good or evil person. It's about doing good things and avoiding doing not so good things. And the two go together. That's why when we state the precepts, it's always about don't do evil, do good. It's, they go together. Because we have both. We wander from the desert to the garden, through the forest, back and forth and back and forth. And more and more as Zen practitioners, we come to live more and more in this beautiful garden with the fragrance of perfume, of goodness. So it's up to us. We have a choice. Every moment, every situation. So when we feed the good wolf, the loving wolf, the compassionate wolf, I could say that the wolf becomes domesticated. <laughs> the wolf evolves into a puppy. The wolf becomes truly a companion animal. An animal we live with. <laughs>